Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Hey, Noah, I understand you're having a good week. Oh, Steve, it's been a great week. It's been such a good week. It was a hard week last week. We did a lot of good work. And then we sat down and did some reflection, sat down and said, how could we improve our processes? How could we tweak? How could we become a little more efficient? And then we did those things, and gosh darn it, Steve, now everything's working even better this week. That's all you can hope for, right? Incremental improvements. Well, there you go. So I understand you've had a project this week. Tell me about it. So uh, I've been on a quest to try and make my house a little more energy efficient. And I don't just mean the amount of power coming out. I was looking at, I'm trying to understand where you tend to lose energy, either in the form of heat or in terms of the amount of energy that's actually you're pulling in from the grid. Uh, so in other places in the world that I've lived, there's been something called an energy consultant. And they kind of come in and they look at things like, you know, are your, are your windows leaking or is it a case of you need more insulation on the outside of your house or, you know, those sorts of things so that your furnace doesn't have to work as hard or your AC or whatever. And it's part of this whole process that I've been going through to try and make my, my home a little bit better in the long run because we're, you know, God willing, we're rooting down here and it's going to be the forever home or at least the until my kids are out of the house home. And so we're trying to be as forward thinking as possible. And as part of that, um, as everybody knows, I do a lot with home automation. So uh, I was kind of looking through various videos on getting solar installed in the house. And I stumbled across this video about a prepper who was talking about solar power. And she was talking about how she doesn't have solar because she's gotten her usage down to about one kilowatt where the, av where the lowest spec system you can get for solar is 2.5 kilowatt and she was saying it was overkill but the point of saying that was she kind of went through and addressed how she was able to find the various let's say energy hogs in her uh, in her house to get her power usage down that low and so i kind of started going down the route that she did and thought well what is it that's actually using a lot of power in my house so I pulled in my my bill every month. I kind of track the amount of power that I'm pulling through, and I pulled in about 1,400 kilowatts off the grid in December. And I thought, well, that's kind of high. I want to see where that is. So I'll give a small plug to my friends over at CloudFree.shop. They have these energy monitoring plugs that you can get for 13 bucks. They run Tasmoda. They're fantastic. Um, I I went and bought three of these guys and kind of stuck them on various devices in my house to see what they're pulling. And my biggest revelation was actually, I have a receiver and a sub down in, like a, a subwoofer down in my projector room. And we only use the projector room once or twice a week. And normally it sits idle, but I've never thought to 
turn these things off. So I stuck a smart plug down there and I discovered that they are, they are pulling two kilowatts a day. Just Holy cow, just the sub, just the sub and the receiver together, just pulling two kilowatt hours a day. This is, you uh, have them when you're using them. No, this is just when they're just sitting there doing nothing. I just stuck a plug on them and watched them for a couple of days. Um, and I discovered, yeah. So basically every month they're, they're eating 60 kilowatt hours or adding 60 kilowatt hours onto my bill. And so I went and, you know, used the smart plug and turned that off. So I've been kind of hunting down um, various things out there because, well, that's not going to make a huge dent by itself. If I find three, four, five different instances like that, that I can kind of help, like my treadmill area has a TV and an Apple TV in the treadmill. And previously I just kind of left all that stuff plugged in. But then I thought, well, I only really run after work and I don't run after 9 p.m. because that's too late for me. So I have Home Assistant turn the plug off from 9 p.m. until 3 p.m. the next day. And that cuts down on that kind of, um, you know, energy vampires. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. If you're if you're curious about these sort of things, you might be shocked like I was where that energy might be going out. Have you ever seen the uh, the little device? I think it's called Kill a Watt, and it's a little device that you plug in, and you just get, it has a little screen on it, and it just tells you how much power a particular device is using. I have seen those. Uh, what I was more interested in is because some things will pull various powers. So I did the same test, for example, on uh, we just bought a TV on on Black Friday, so brand new TV and an Nvidia Shield, and what I've noticed is. Every once in a while, the NVIDIA Shield will pull a little bit more power, and I don't know if that's because it's pulling for updates or whatever it's doing. Um, so the kilowatt is good if you want a, just like a snapshot of what's happening immediately, but doesn't give you that, that kind of view back in, and figure out like, okay, over the course of time or like yesterday, for example, my wife and I watched a couple hours of TV, and between that and what it pulled, it only pulled 0.3 kilowatt hours for the entire day. And a kilowatt meter is not going to tell you that. Yeah. 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 No, long term is it's definitely uh, your your route is definitely the way to go. Plus, if you can track it in Home Assistant, then you can do it long term, right? It's a permanent solution. Absolutely. They've got this like energy dashboard. And uh, funny thing is my receiver uh, pulled more overnight than my desktop sleeping, which that surprised me a ton because I thought, you know, it pulled almost three times the amount that my desktop does when it was sleeping. Fantastic. Well, Steve, we'll get some links for you for the show notes. How about we dig into some feedback? Absolutely. Ninja Tech writes in and says, in episode 269 of Ask Noah, we talked about Grub2 on Lux and if it's supported, but Grub2 on Lux V2 is not supported out of the box. Grub2 on Lux V1 is supported out of the box. By default, a new Lux container is Lux V2. Details are here for Grub on Lux V2. Any links to wiki.archlinux.org. While the steps are Arch-specific, the page will inform the advanced user on what to do to make it work. There are two steps. Add the key using pbkdf2 instead of argon2 and recreate the Grub UEFI stub using additional CLI flags, then add the needed capabilities. So the short answer here is you can do it, you just need to know ahead of time that that's what you're going to do and how you're going to set it up. And we'll have a link for you to that, that ArchWiki uh, in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our second email comes in from 
Veritunda. He says, hey, no and Steve. This old chestnut of an email server keeps coming up, but I'm always puzzled why you don't recommend a proper hybrid solution, which gives you all of the control you need and can inherently help with privacy. The idea is this. One, you set up an email server with your chosen domain. It can be a web host. It can be Gmail, Hotmail, etc. Two, you install iRedMail onto a local server. It can be a Docker stack for ease. Three, you configure the iRedMail server to pull email from your chosen host providers. When pulling the mail, you can filter it, you can redirect it, auto-respond to it, etc. Fourth, you serve the email locally to users as profiled by your iRed mail server on a per-domain basis. The advantages are this. One, you're not opening up your network to the internet, which can be an attack vector. Two, you can also use multiple domains and service providers and merge them automatically into your local configuration. Three, should the iRed mail server go down, you can still access the email via the web portal via your provider, so nothing is lost. Four, you can make filters for spam and learn from it for anything that gets through your providers, making a cleaner experience for your users. Five, if you set up VPN on iRed mail, you can access it from any network securely and it won't have Google grumbling about logging in from a new IP address. And six, that point above also enhances privacy because as far as Google or Apple or anyone else knows, you're picking the email up from the same IP address regardless of where you actually read it from your client app. Really, to me, this is the best of both worlds. You don't have to worry about it being reachable by the Internet or dealing with SPF records. Plus, you have the fallback and can always access your email directly on the service provider as well as if you need to do maintenance locally. The added benefit, too, is that you can centralize all of your mail and you can serve it to users as you want to. Is there any particular reason you've not talked about this? For me, it's a no-brainer. I've literally dozens of email addresses all over the place, and I always get narked off when Google flags me as unauthorized login from XXS. Was this you message? I just don't need Google tracking my IP addresses every time I pick up email. So fortunately, I have both WireGuard and Sync on my phone, and I can connect to my mail server over that. It's a seamless experience. And so far, iRedMail is extremely low maintenance. It's easily configured through a web GUI. I guess the only downside is you're collecting all of the email locally, so storage is a problem if you have multiple very active accounts, but maybe not too great too for a business solution. But for a home user, it sure is a lot better experience. If Hotmail ever goes down, you can still send email, which should be queued until it's sent. Okay, so this is just my four... Uh, four penny worth on the subject, and I hope there are some fl any flaws in my logic. You'll be kind enough to point them out. Keep up the great show. I find it most engaging so far. Keep it up, okay? Veritanda. So, Steve, your thoughts. Um, if I'm to sum this up correctly, it's we set up iRed Mail, and then we've essentially uh, we've pulled from you know Gmail or Hotmail or all those places. So, a couple of things there, right? First of all, those mail providers are all getting copies of those messages, and so any sort of you know, uh, government or three-letter agency place that would be asking for copies are still getting those. Um, the email providers themselves are still able to scrape them, but we get a local copy of them on our home server. Uh, what do you think? Is, is are we? What are we solving here? I couldn't figure out what we're trying to solve here, so I sat down and 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 wrote out a bunch of things, a bunch of thoughts about this. Um, so I don't really see what 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 this solution gains you. So you, you're still losing the control of hosting your own email. You can't use uh, email wildcards, which I use quite heavily. Um, you can't, you're still like using the upstream provider who ultimately stores your email. Um, you're adding to your own personal setup and maintenance by caring for a new service. Um, and even as an email backup, 
you don't get very much doing this over say an IMAP server and an email client that that you can back that up. I'm I'm not sold on this at all because I don't I don't see why you would do this. As for the privacy, um, I don't think that it gives you any privacy. You could you could say, well, the Google doesn't track me as soon as I turn on my VPN to connect to my email. Fine, except that you know some of us run an e like a, a persistent VPN anyways. And if you don't, you still have like there'll still be times where your VPN will drop and Google will get your IP anyways. So or or Apple or whoever your phone provider is. I don't really buy that uh, argument. I don't, they know your email, so I don't really see what this actually gets you, um, except for, I will give you this, it does handle multiple service providers, but so do other things like Blue Mail and um, K-Mail and like several, several types of clients for phones can already plug into various service services and give you one inbox. Um, as for the spam, I'm not sure how big of a, an issue that is unless you're going with a, a really small provider. Like uh, even with ProtonMail, who is, who is you know, a flea compared to Gmail, their spam is still pretty good. It's not solid, but it, it's definitely not any kind of headache. So I, I just, I don't see the value in this. I would push back a little bit on the, if your VPN drops, so far as I understand it, he's checking his mail on his iRed mail server. So the iRed mail server's IP is the only one that's ever talking directly to Google uh, or, you know, the other service providers. So, I mean, I guess there's something there. I just, A, if, you know, if you think about what that actually gets you in practice, if they ever want to find out who that IP belongs to, they can simply call up DigitalOcean or whoever it is or get a subpoena and say, whose IP address is this? And say, here's the registered person we have on file. So I, there's a little bit of privacy there, but not a whole lot. I also think that we're getting, to, you know, my biggest concern here is if you're giving the email out as blah, 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 at gmail.com, blah, 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 at hotmail.com, that right there is where my red line is. That's where I try to stop things from happening, Steve, because that's where everybody is going to then reach out to me. That becomes the point of contact for everybody else. That's what I want to control, if anything. Um, after that, it's just a function of if I wanted privacy in the email, I'm encrypting it. And if I don't care about privacy, then it doesn't really matter if it passes through Google servers or if it rests there. They have a copy of it either way. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't want a dog on the Redmail project for sure, the iRedmail. No, 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 no. There's obviously a, a demand out there for this for some reason. I just don't know what it is. Well, if you want... so. I think if you're a person that says, hey, I take the whole, like, I want to own my own data seriously, and you take that all the way to email, then, you know, more power to you. I think iRedmail is a great way to go. The thing that I, the where that breaks down for me is that I just don't see email as a super private way to communicate. It it wasn't really designed with that in mind, and there are third-party ways that you can, you know, add PGP and so on and so forth um, to get there. But if I was interested in that, I'd, I would just use my Proton mail address. But I don't even buy the idea that this is providing you any le level of privacy because you're still using the yes. upstream people. So, yes. again, I don't I don't know what problem this is actually supposed to be solving. Hmm. Well, that's uh, <laughs> you. Uh, you can write in Veritondef. We're missing something. We, we'd love to hear it. Steve and I are both 
uh, fairly privacy conscious people. We'd both be interested in a, in a better way if there is one uh, to uh, to secure our email. So if we're missing something, let us know. And thanks for the email. We appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to probably butcher the screen name, but a platypus writes in and says, Hi, Noah, I was listening to your podcast episode 271 and the discussion about using Cinnamon Desktop on Ubuntu. I thought I'd give you my experience. I've been running Cinnamon Desktop on top of stock Ubuntu for three or four years. It's worked fine with 2110, 2140, uh, 2010, 24, 1910, 1904, 1804. I also use Nemo as my file browser over that period. I switched to Ubuntu because I did have stability problems on Mint. Mostly I think it was a driver compiler policy that upset things. Once I switched to Ubuntu, things were good. I switched to Cinnamon Ubuntu after about a year of using Windows 10 and constant delays. Compared to Windows 10, life is a breeze. I didn't find anything new or useful in GNOME. I'm not clear where they want to go either. So as far as I do not need to go there myself, don't get me wrong, my first encounter with WYSIWYG desktop was Lisa. Xerox, take a look at it. I've used Sun, Pyramid, Mac. I've had Macintosh before being put on Windows for my bread and butter. I found Windows lacking in 3.11, and even then it was barely functional. I probably agree with the Windows XP, Windows 2000 camp and felt that Microsoft finished the desktop. I feel Windows 7 was a polished version. Just to point out that I'm not wedded to the Windows desktop paradigm, I want three things that I don't want things that get in my way when I'm doing work. On Cinnamon, I can add workspaces. I can have nine things and three spare things going on. No stability problems to speak of. I know others are using Cinnamon without Mint. You can put it on Plasma side by side if you want and play space. Cheers. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. If you're looking for the closest thing to a Windows environment, I think that's why people uh, land on Cinnamon. And I think, Steve, that, that episode 271 is where you had said that's what you recommend to a lot of new users is Cinnamon, uh, specifically uh, uh, Linux Mint. Um, yeah, it, it's comfy because it's got the button. Like I like I like Ubuntu Mate um, quite a bit, and that's definitely a close second. But uh, yeah, Mint, Mint looks more familiar, I think. Andy writes in and says, Good evening, Noah and Steve. I wanted to weigh in about smart switches. This topic has come up a handful of times over the past year, and I agree with Noah that a switch has to be a switch. The operability of a switch cannot be impacted by the existence of a smart functionality. I'm in the process of replacing my dumb switches in my home, one at a time, as it becomes necessary. I considered many smart switches with a Z-Wave and Zigbee. I looked into the Shelly devices and smart systems with a hub and adapters. I've heard you recommend Lutron Radio Raw series of smart devices, but after looking into these... They seem like they're a tried and pragmatic solution, but they're a bit on the pricey side. I ended up finding the Lutron Castra series of devices and gave them a try. I have to say, I'm loving them. The Lutron Castra system offers a full line of smart switches, outlets, fans, and shade controllers, and system remotes. And with the correct setup, integrates seamlessly with Home Assistant without the use of a cloud service. In order for the Castra system to work without their cloud service, their Smart Bridge Pro Hub is required. Model and then he gives a model number. The SmartBridge Pro Hub provides an API which allows a compatible smart controller or security system to generate a certificate and communicate directly with the hub itself versus using the cloud as a proxy. Since Home Assistant is not an officially supported system, a couple extra steps are required, and the setup procedure for the Lutron Castra Assistant integration is linked below. Once the integration is set up, you should be able to communicate directly with the hub, and you can block the hub's IP address from accessing the internet without losing connectivity with your hub or devices. 
Home Assistant Lutron CASA integration setup. He links to that. Thanks for the Gurumits for the Pi Lutron script. He links to that. The only potential downside here is you need to use the Lutron mobile app to do an initial pairing of your devices to the hub. Once the new switcher controller is paired, internet access is no longer required to use your devices. On the topic of cost, I found that the switches and controllers cost between $40 to $70, and the hub is about $150. This is significantly cheaper than the Radio Raw series, and I can still get the local control, not stick strictly dependent on a cloud service. This system has met the spousal approval factor 100% and still satisfies my desire to include devices in home assistant automations and such. Thanks so much for the show. Please keep up the good work. It is wonderful to have such a community-driven outlet for us techies to bounce ideas off one another and their thoughts and ideas. Sincerely, Andy B. So, Steve, your thoughts on uh, Lutron Castra. I, I'm convinced that if Lutron puts a bunch of uh, engineering into Homeworks and Radio Raw, I doubt that that engineering, they just throw it out when they get to their lower-end Castra devices. I would imagine that a lot, to a certain degree, that trickles down. So... I haven't used the I haven't used the Cassetta line myself, but I think that I, I have a hard time deciding how this is different than the the Z Wave stuff that that I actually have in my house. Their switches, just like everything else, they don't require a special app. They don't make any calls out to the internet at all, so they're not even required for the initial setup. Um, and so, I'm not really sure what what this gets me other aside from being inside of the Lutron ecosystem, if that's your thing. But the Z-Wave stuff doesn't really require that expensive of a, of a hub. Like the one that I bought is just a USB stick that was $40 or something like that. And yeah. so for the price, um, the price is comparable per device, it seems like. But I'm not sure what this gets me over the Z-Wave. I'd be interested if, if the Andy would write back in and... and explain why he chose this over z-wave just just for my own edification yeah yeah i i i can't speak to that let me ask you this have you ever had a problem with a z-wave device or when you push the button it happens instantaneously every time and when it receives a command from home assistant it works every time is that true I, with z-wave devices i have never had an issue once with my z-wave stuff not yeah. once yeah then i then i would agree i don't know what the i don't know what the appeal is so let us know tell us Hey, Patrick writes in, he says, hi, Noah and Steve, I'm looking to buy a server to act as my home NAS. I'm thinking about something on the smaller side, like a five bay spinning rust in a ZFS array. Since I'm on a budget, I'd like to, sh I'd like to shoot for used equipment. Any ideas where to look? One thing to note, I'm based in Vancouver, so something available in Canada would be specifically a plus. Maybe Steve would be able to recommend something specifically for Canada. So, Steve, I have recommendations for the U.S. I got a lot of go-to places. I don't have anything for Canada. What do you got for Patrick? So the, the first problem here is we don't know what the budget is. Mm. We don't know what the noise constraints are. Although if you're in Vancouver, I assume you're in an apartment. I kind of missed that on the first read-through. Most people in Vancouver, because the prices are ridiculous out there, um, they tend to be in apartments, which probably means that noise is a factor. If noise is a factor, you're probably going to end up building your own, I think, because I started looking at um, Synology stuff or any of the built-in NAS, uh, like the the kind of the pre-made NAS stuff where you could slot drives in. And, and once you get above two to three disks, they've become four, five, six hundred dollars in Canada. Um, so I kind of linked to LabGopher, and this is a, a website that kind of searches 
eBay Canada. You can use it with different countries, but I obviously link, link the Canadian one. And I can you can pick up a really cheap server. And by really cheap, I just cursorily before the show looked at an HP ProLiant, which has a couple of uh, CPUs in it and 16 gigs of RAM. And it has eight 2.5 inch hard drive bays. It's 50 bucks. So $50 Canadian. So that, that might be worth looking into. If, if you're not interested in that, there is a website called Part Picker and it will help you kind of mix and match things. And I'll, I'll make sure that a link gets in the, no, in the show notes for this. I used to use this all the time when I was doing my own builds because you can do things like pick your motherboard and then it will auto filter uh, the CPU so that you don't pick the wrong CPU and the same thing with the RAM and all the rest of that. And it searches tons of sites to, to get this information. And so I actually discovered several online websites through, through using the part picker, because essentially what it does is you pick a part and then it shows you everywhere that you might buy this online in Canada. And you can then just, you can either use this website to kind of collect things and, and buy it for you, you know, kind of in proxy, mm-hmm. or you can click through and, and shop just on one individual website. Aside from that, um, I had a Canada computer in my city, so I went there a ton and, uh, use stuff honestly it's it really is difficult to get decent used stuff in vancouver you might be able to hit up kijiji for example because vancouver has a a big import station and so both both coasts in my in my experience have ways to get cheap cheaper hardware like there seems to be a market for that but you'd have to be able to search locally for that so i'd i'd look at if i'm looking at the name brand ones i'd say new egg canada I'd say Canada computers and then part picker for being able to, to kind of assemble your own thing. Because for a NAS, you really don't need much. Like you could pick up a motherboard that has six SATA ports for 90 bucks. And then you throw a cheap processor in there, some RAM, and you're off to the races. Very uh, good. What What do you think, Noah? I don't know anything about uh, about Canada-specific uh, uh, part pick uh, PC part places to to buy stuff. I have used Server Monkey uh, out the wazoo. They sell new and refurbished servers, and you can go on their site. You can spec out what you want. They do a lot of uh, sales on eBay, and so if you, for whatever reason, want to use eBay or go through PayPal, you're welcome to do that. Um, but you can go through and basically say, "I want this chassis, I want this processor, I want uh, this much RAM." And then they ship it to you. And I've we've bought a number of servers from Server Monkey, and I've always been really happy with them. Another one, and I think this is Alan Jude uses this is uh, oh now I'm not going to be able to remember the guy's Unix name. Surplus. Yes, Unix Surplus. Thank you. Um, and sells on eBay and does a fantastic job uh, with selling super micro servers. And so, whereas Server Monkey does a lot of HP and Dell, Unix Surplus does a lot of super micro stuff. And so, if I was looking for a FreeNAS box or a PFSense box. Um, uh, I'll hit them up uh, quite a bit, and that guy does a really great job and has a lot of really great prices as well. Our fifth email comes in from Roger. Writes, Roger writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. In a recent episode of your podcast, you mentioned the Unify Switch Flex Mini. I keep this little gem in my backpack configured to mirror a port so I can capture packets when I'm troubleshooting network issues. It's small, it's low cost, and it's a managed switch, which is a very useful addition to my troubleshooting kit. Best regards, Roger. 
What a wonderful idea. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, I, I don't have, uh, I don't use the Flex. I do use a an HP 1920 8-port uh, switch, and you can pick them up for like $65, $70 um, off of like uh, B&H, or I guess it's 1820 that's like $70, um, but they're like $60, $70, and, um, uh, and uh, is managed switch and has a web UI, and keeping something like that in your backpack is super useful. I also have a Netgear original four-port hub, um, so he talks about mirroring a port and using it to collect traffic. The original way of doing that was just to plug a hub in. And um, so I've got that for, for capturing traffic as well. But I think if you troubleshoot networks for a living, you definitely want to have a managed switch so that you can speak on the appropriate VLANs and do all the things. Can you still buy a hub? Like, I, I actually thought you couldn't buy these things anymore. Yeah, I just go on eBay and I'll just search Netgear uh, Hub and there's the little four or five port uh, deals that, that used to be there. And there you, you pick them up for 15 bucks, 20 bucks most of the time. Uh, DS108, I think. Are they gigabit? No, of course not. <laughs> I don't think they made, I don't think they had gigabit ports back when they were making hubs. So wouldn't that actually cause degradation in the service that you're trying to observe? Yeah, I suppose if it was a long-term thing, um, you pro- but then again, if you're, it's a long-term thing, you're probably not pulling something out of your backpack and checking, right? You're probably logging into their switch and mirroring a port. I guess I was just thinking in the type of troubleshooting that I'm doing, it's like, hey, I need a customer to actually do this thing, or I want to observe the QA team as they're doing it, and, mm. and then that would impact their their processes. That that was where my mind was going. Oh, totally. Yeah, I think in that situation, I'd probably log into their switch and start making configuration changes to say I'm going to plug a machine in here and we're going to capture some traffic for a little bit. But mm. just for that, uh, that you know, so-and-so's phone won't connect or can't get an IP address on this DHCP server or this VLAN doesn't connect. It's kind of nice to have something that you just pull out of the backpack, plug in and say, yep, there you go, here's your issue. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. The European Union has announced that it will pay for finding bugs in open source software. The consumer credit monitoring company, Credit Karma, looks to open source its distributed app platform. Ford has released open source files for 3D printing Ford Maverick accessories. The Penkesu computer is a mini DIY open source laptop powered by a Raspberry Pi Zero 2W. The Healthy Pi is an open source human vital monitor built as a Raspberry Pi hat. It monitors heart rate, pulse ox, respiration rate, and skin temperature. There are future plans to add a blood pressure sensor and a glucometer. Another open source device of note is the Mutant W V1, an open source ESP32-based smartwatch designed with Autodesk Fusion and Eagle. The open source company Linagora is working on a Google Drive alternative. KDE 524 has been released and will serve as an LTS release. Kali Linux 2022.1 is released with a new everything flavor. And lastly, the Lumina desktop is looking for coding assistance with a few big tasks if you have C++ and or Qt experience and are looking for a project to contribute to. A big part of both Steve and I stays at our respective companies is dealing with people that may or may not have experience with open source. And so a lot of times we are put in a position of talking to people about open source and we hear a lot of the pushback that comes with that. And so I guess to start this, Steve, what I would what I would say is that even five years ago, the landscape has changed 
pretty dramatically. Open source is far more prevalent now in circles that I would have never expected it in five years ago. Companies and IT staff who suggest FOSS now um, need to be ready to answer for those suggestions. And so we have to we have to have answers. It's responsible to have answers to things like who do you call when something goes wrong and who's willing to be sued or take the blame when something goes wrong. Um, and, and this has come a long way from where the discussion was simply that the people that are out there going, it's, it's, it's not a it's a tool. It's not a religion. And somehow implying that value doesn't play into these sorts of decisions. And so the last week was very enlightening for me. I spent a week um, working at, uh, at, at a radio station setting up a, a number of different broadcast scenarios. And we did everything from fundraisers to business promos. And this week starts uh, the EDC hockey tournament. And so they're going to be doing a lot of broadcasting of hockey. And what do all of these things have in common? Well, they're all being powered by Linux. And most of the software running on top of those Linux boxes is open source software. And the codecs that are being used to transmit the audio are open source codecs. And as I as we kind of wrapped up the, the, the final setup, it's kind of set up to do the next series of games and a number of different things uh, we've got capture cards and, and IP cameras and all of these things coming in to gigantic Linux boxes. And that's what's facilitating these broadcasts. And and the the thing that I that got me to where I said this is a discussion I want to have on Ask Noah is there's this belief out there that only techie people will use it. And that if something goes wrong we have to we have to drop to the command line and we have to know the right magical incantation to type into it to fix it. And that's just not accurate anymore. That's not true. The truth is that people with almost no tech experience um, will end up using these systems. And the people that I work with at the radio station, they're not Linux geeks. They're not nerds. They don't care what operating system is on there. They don't care what software is there. They don't care what license is attached. What they care is Will it get the job done and will it do it reliably, securely and efficiently? And what I'm finding is over and over and over, the answer to that question is yes. And so we've got a, a, a Dell machine out there. We've got OBS running. I've got both Magwell and um, starting to get into network capture devices now. Um, we've got the Open IAS scoreboards. If you've not checked that out, you can. their, their code is available on uh, on GitHub and they have it as an app image. And then we're streaming all of that with Scale Engine. So... To kick off the discussion, Steve, I guess I want to ask this. What uh, what are some of the most uh, common places that you find yourself having a discussion about open source? Working at Red Hat, obviously, to a certain degree, if you're picking up the phone to begin with, they have a Red Hat product or they're probably not talking to Steve, right? But undoubtedly, you have either in, in, in past jobs or in your current job come across people and they have not heard or are not aware of open source, to what degree do you have that conversation and what does that look like? Yeah, um, that conversation looks very different depending on what stage in my career I was in. Because like you said, um, working for the largest open source company in the world means that if they're talking to us, they they already are aware of open source on some level. Uh, nowadays, it's really interesting when you're talking about open source, because my clients are starting to ask things like, is there an upstream project for this? Mm. Um, and not because necessarily they want to save money, but they like the idea of pushing off the burden of maintenance onto the community. Like if they can get this adopted upstream, so maybe they make some hack to one of our products to make it work better for them. And you can always 
open up an RFE, a, risk, a request for engineering. And Red Hat will evaluate that and decide whether or not we're going to integrate that into the to the project as a whole, uh, outside of what's happening upstream. But if they go upstream and get upstream to adopt it, then it gets filtered into OpenShift or whatever project they, they're trying to amend just by the process of Red Hat, you know, consumes the upstream and with with some very few exceptions, doesn't really reject or prune anything that has been done upstream. And so people are really starting to evaluate the idea of if I make a contribution, I don't actually have to carry the burden of maintaining that because I can push that into the upstream project. And instead of having to figure out how to patch this every time there's a new version, you know, it'll just get rolled down. So I thought that was kind of interesting from from you know, a modern day perspective, having that conversation. Absolutely. The fact that a client would know what stream, what upstream is and know to look there is that in and of itself is a small little win for open source because people are aware of the software landscape. They're aware that, the, you know, a lot of this stuff starts its infancy out in the community and gets a little bit of ground. And once the snowball is built a little bit and has some momentum, then a company like Red Hat is more interested in saying, hey, let's suck this up. Let's go ahead and put this into a product. Um, and you can inject your input wherever you'd like in that pipeline. But the further upstream you go, the downside to that, right? You're, there's no guarantee that anybody cares that you are asking for this thing downstream. At least with a request for engineering, there is likely a process in which Red Hat evaluates and, and gets back to them and says, we'll do this, we won't do this, whatever. At least you have some place to follow up with. With the community, you're kind of taking your chances. But at the same time, uh, you have that opportunity to input on, on a less barrier for entry. Or I would assume uh, that you could hire a developer and say, hey, can you make these changes and commit them upstream? And then let's see if it trickles back down. It's just a very shift in the landscape because... You know, I remember being, uh, even being a Linux administrator at, at a, a company that ran the websites for the auto industry. So definitely not a, uh, a tiny P, you know, we ran all of our servers on Linux and we had Apache and Tomcat and MySQL and all that kind of stuff, but it was still a hard sell, you know, back seven, 10 years ago to get an open source solution for let's say i don't know monitoring in and i think that's that has been an interesting shift where we went from having difficult discussions of getting something in the door to hey does this thing have an upstream project like that that is kind of a, a big shift and i think that red hat and and canonical have done a, a really good service in in messaging open source yeah, very much so. So I want to play a little game. I want to give you some pushbacks that uh, we'll pretend for a moment that I'm your client and you're the guy selling me open source. Um, we want to we want to set the ground rules here a little bit. So the first thing is we want to serve whoever the client is well, right? It's not just a blind, we march towards open source and march towards if it has the right software license we just recommend it out of the blue right there has to be a level of critical thinking that goes on there has to be a level of engagement that that goes on when we when you go into a client infrastructure and start looking and evaluating what solution is going to work here um and 
then the second part of that is we need to be able to set we need to be able to put the proper goggles on to separate emotion from actual facts right and so you'll get a lot of users that will have an emotional response to a change because it's different and it's not what they expected and while that is something we very much care about because we care about the end user experience that is that shouldn't be what drives our decision um so we're sitting down at a table and you recommend the nginx server for me and i say well how much is that going to cost because microsoft wants million dollars to do that and uh so what is this nginx thing going to cost and you sit down and say well we can actually get that set up for you today and it's not going to cost you anything i mean um you know we would recommend that you contribute back to the project and we have a suggested donation amount and it's this but uh, they don't charge anything for downloading nginx it's just available and you can spin it up and i think about that for a second and i look at you and i say steve if it's free, it's probably not any good. Well, so you've given me a pretty good use case. So for the audience, I had no idea we were going to do this today. So I'm I'm completely shooting off the cuff with whatever Noah's coming up with. But he's handed me Nginx. So here's what my answer to that is. Nginx actually use, uses the code base and the feedback from all of its free users to make its enterprise load balancers. And we sell support contract with the enterprise load balancer, but it is informed by the free product. So it's free, it's completely open source, but we use this as the basis for our really big networking clients where they're, they're paying, they're basically paying for the development through their support contract. And you guys get the, uh, get the benefit of enjoying the software as these people have, have paid for the development and w we just kind of push that back to the community. So it actually is well supported. It has a funding model, even though that you're not paying for it, but it also gives you a, a, a clear path. If one day, for example, you're using this as just a web server, but you wanna move into Nginx Plus, which does a whole bunch of other stuff on top of web serving, mm. you have a nice path. You've, you've got familiarity with the product. The, the company has a good track record with you you've got that relationship and you can take this to the next level that's a great answer see we wouldn't have known that you didn't prep that if you didn't say anything <laughs> that sounded great um uh, you know and the thing is it's i i'm always i'm always hesitant to mention pricing i don't know if i don't know if i'm the only one but I, i'm always hesitant to bring that up because i do feel like to a certain degree it carries this 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 notion that if it doesn't cost a lot of money, it doesn't have the same value. And that's simply just not true. And I think anybody that's used open source software knows that. The other thing I try to do is I try to relate it to examples of th other pieces of open source software that they might be familiar with and that they, that, and that they already have a positive con connotation with, right? So a lot of people have used Firefox or have used Google Chrome. Um, and being able to say a lot of the code base for those products are available. And part of what made those products so good was the fact that everybody could put eyes on it. Everybody could test, test drive it, knock on some parts. And where it fell over, then we knew what parts we had to modify. Um, how about this, Steve? Who makes the software? What company owns it? And so I am trying to think of a, I will, maybe we'll use VLC, but you can substitute this with another product if there's something that you think fits the bill better. But the idea is a lot of open source projects, even very, very good ones, aren't backed by some massive company. They don't have some fancy branding and PR team and marketing team and all the things. They have good code. 
really good code and some really passionate people that work on their project. Sometimes it's just a handful of passionate people that work on their project, but they're very passionate people that work on their project. So how do you handle somebody who says, well, if it's not owned by a company and it's not owned by somebody, then, then what is the origin of this? How reliable is it? How can we really trust it? Well, the, the problem with, your, with this pushback is that you're unlikely to be giving something to a business that isn't going to have some backing somewhere. Mm. So, you know, in, in the parameters that you've given me, we're talking to a client VLC or any of those um, projects that, that may have some sort of foundation, but are more community driven, aren't really something that I would have to overcome in, in a regular conversation. Like even if I'm dealing with a small business and we're talking about, Libra office and you say, well, who owns that? And my response to that would be, well, there's a, there's a project that's set up and they have a legal entity that is allowed to accept donations. What happens is all of these companies get together and donate to this in their best interest. So like if, if we were to say like, let's, let's say Nextcloud didn't have a company behind it. We know it does, but let's say it didn't. Um, then you would say, okay, well, all of these people need syncing and calendars and stuff like that. And they don't want to use Microsoft's products for whatever reason. So what they did was they got together and they are funding the development of this. So while nobody actually owns Nextcloud, we actually have a situation where we've got CERN and they, they need to move around massive amounts of data. And we've got, you know, the, the, um, organizations in Germany and they're all using it. And we have the, uh, the various governments in Europe that have started to mandate that companies that we will be investing in open source. So what this really means is people are actually donating part of their money in order to pay the developers. The developers are part of an organization that um, helps distribute the money, but nobody actually owns the software because everybody's contributing to it. Mm. That's really good. I This is one of the things, most of these things I, I, I have had what I think are pretty decent answers to when clients ask me. This particular one has bit me a, a few times. Um, not recently, but years ago, I didn't uh, do enough due diligence with this, somewhat embarrassingly. And so what would happen is I would go out, I would find an open source solution. It did the thing. It worked fine, seemed to be fine. And I would install it. And two, three years later, I would come back and something is not working and I go to look and, you know, widget A is incompatible with widget B and I would go and look and, well, why didn't they update that? Oh, oh, they haven't updated it since I installed it. Oh, they really hadn't updated it for five years before that. Oh, this is just code out in the middle of nowhere. And after doing that, after getting bit by that once or twice, I eventually got to the point where now I'm, I'm a little bit more careful. And I do take the time to go through and find out where is this project, uh, who is behind this project, how many commits are, you know, if you go look up on, on GitHub or GitLab, how many commits are, are happening? How recent are they? Is it all by one user or is it spread out? It's been really fascinating to me, Steve. Even some companies that produce proprietary software do it on GitHub. They have a proprietary license, but they, for whatever reason, leave their repository open. And so you can still see uh, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, commits and stuff like that. And I've come into, come and run into that a few times. 
and or they'll have the opposite. They won't have the code available, but they'll still have like they'll use GitHub or GitLab for issue tracking. Um, and so just seeing how active those people are and what the project is doing. And then if there is an entity behind it, which entity is it? And might they have any sort of conflict of interest or is it uh, are they really in it for the right reasons? All of those kinds of things. And evaluating that has it gives me a, a slightly better answer when I can go in and say, hey, this is, you know, like you said, is the, this is who makes the software and maybe it's not a big name company, but here's why we can still trust it. This is one of my favorite ones, probably the most common one we come across. I thought the industry standard was this or a close cousin of that. I'm used to seeing this and that looks different. That's not where the buttons are supposed to be and it doesn't look like what I'm used to. Hmm. Well, so industry standard, that's an interesting one. Um, those ones are a little easier to knock down as long as auditors are not involved. Because okay. oftentimes when you get involved with auditors, they don't have a requirement like must have centralized logging, must have two-factor authentication. Like they have uses Active Directory mm. or some ridiculous thing like that, as opposed to what they're trying to achieve. They have uses product X. If you're in that kind of situation, you can't win. There's just, you just can't win because you can't check that box. But if you're talking about industry standard, um, there are easier ways to kind of defeat that. So you first have to do a little bit of due diligence and think about what this client is trying to achieve before you make the pitch. So if you're talking about, mm, let's say, industry standard for, I don't know, email, uh, and you know that this client has a specific need that doesn't necessarily mean Outlook, industry standard then should be based on what it is they're trying to achieve. So to send secure email, you have a you have an email system that has some form of encryption that allows people outside the company to receive a link where they can adopt or pick up their secure email. Okay, that's the industry standard. The industry standard isn't using um, Exchange mm. or whatever because you'll find that uh, if, if you actually look into it, lawyers' offices and doctors' offices and uh, the financial industry, they all have the same requirement, but they do this in very different ways. There is no industry standard. The industry standard is what it, like, you know, if you're having backups, for example, the industry standard is to encrypt your backups at rest, not to use, I don't know, Norton for doing your encryption. So you have to have put some forethought into this ahead of time because industry standard has requirements and not individual projects, products. And that's why so many people can live in one space. Like Nginx is just one of the competition for load balancers, enterprise load balancers. So saying industry standard for load balancers doesn't necessarily mean F5. F5 may be prevalent, but industry standard is more I have these sets of features and how does this thing fit into that set of features? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great answer. I I 
it's funny what you what you talk about when they instead of specifying what you're trying to accomplish specifying a particular product or service that I've seen that more and more in the past few years particularly as it relates to Office 365 because Microsoft has put Office 365 out there and because so many businesses just whole hog adopt it a lot of the audit process or a lot of the you know what the biggest thing I see it Steve cyber insurance Cyber insurance quotes. If you go get a cyber insurance quote, they have specific questions on there about Office 365. Now, tell me what is a rhetorical question, but why do you need to why do you structure your questions? Why does it matter? Why do we why do we presuppose that I'm using Office 365 to qualify for cyber insurance in the first place? And the, the stupid thing is the way that they phrase the question is. If you use Office 365 and then they have, do you have this enabled? Do you have this enabled? Do you have that? So, well, what if I don't? Do you not care if I have two-factor uh, two factor if I'm not using Office 365? To me, the subtle answer there is if I say I'm not using Office 365, then is there just the assumption that all of these things aren't there because those features could only be available in Office 365? Um, and that has been a, a source of, of, of some frustration. But the, where, uh, the other thing that I hear a lot is users uh, who sit down and they go to use only Office as opposed to Microsoft Office, and it looks different to the buttons in a different place. Now, Jeremy in the chat room says, and I think he's right here, UX is important. So if it's different from users are used to, the UX needs to be intuitive and easy. And I, I couldn't agree with that more. There is a lot of truth to that. If you're going to expect somebody to do their job every day, it needs the software needs to be intuitive enough for them to figure it out. What I don't typically have a lot of patience for, and maybe I should have more patience with this, is when a user sits down and says, "Well, the buttons aren't where I expect them to. Is this sucks? I don't want to use it." That to me is in a, an emotional child throwing a tantrum. It's not a rational decision. Uh, and the the fortunate part for me is that the people usually making the decision and writing the checks are not the people that have to use the software. And so they're less concerned with little Bobby or Susie who sits down at the front desk and says that I don't like this thing. Now, I try to heavily balance my objective of serving those people well, and so I would not want to give them a tool that they wouldn't be able to use or can't use. But oftentimes what I find is if I, if it was just a little bit of pushing, well, why don't you try it for 30 days? Why don't you see how that works? And once you've learned where all of the things are and figure out how to get your workflow done in this tool, if it still isn't working for you, then let me know and we can have another conversation. And I found a tremendous amount of, uh, I've gotten a tremendous amount of mileage out of that technique because what it does is it ends the discussion of, this is different, so I don't like it, and we accept that, and now we go back to doing our job or trying to. We ask clarifying questions if we don't understand where something is or how to do something, and we'll get them the technical answer that they need to be able to do the thing. And then once they get their head wrapped around the tool, oftentimes what I'll find is the exact opposite happens. Now they don't want to go back because back is different. And the most clear-cut illustration I have of that is when office went to ribbons um, we were at the time recommending open office LibreOffice, and for many years people uh preferred LibreOffice or open office because it didn't have ribbons on by default and they could find things and you know over time that changes because as ribbons became the standard then people coming up through school you know came out and expected everything to be in ribbons and now LibreOffice has ribbons um but i think just giving just enough of a nudge to users to get people to consider 
a different piece of software or consider a different workflow, consider a different way to do things, I think can be a really powerful uh, motivator. Uh, you get a user, Steve, and they say, uh, why do I care if the source code is available? I'm not a programmer. We're not a development firm. We're an XYZ store, and I'm never going to hire a developer. I'm never going to pay somebody to do this stuff. So what you tell me that this open source stuff is valuable because the code is available. What if I don't care? How does that actually benefit me? What would you say to that person? I guess it depends on the situation that I'm in. If we're talking about uh, the source code and how Red Hat fits into that ecosystem, the answer to that is if you require additional functionality. So let's take Kubernetes, for example. One of the big pain points for Kubernetes is how do I back this thing up? And so there's a project out there called Valero, and Valero has attempted to fill that void. Valero is open source. Red Hat is able to then respond to client demand and say, you know, they're saying we want something that backs this up and Red Hat can then pick this up and modify it to suit demand. So some of the things that, that are important to clients are things like, does it have authentication? Does it have authentication to like Active Directory or all these sorts of things? Whereas upstream Kubernetes is less focused on that sort of stuff. And so Red Hat will take a product and layer authentication over top of it, like Grafana. So Grafana, in, in the Grafana project, it has no authentication into corporate directory structures unless you pay for an up, an, another tier. But because it's open source, Red Hat can take that and add in the authentication, for example, to plug into OpenShift's authentication or, or whatever, and you derive value from that because even if you're not going to action upon it the fact that the people providing the software can action this and then accept contributions from the community such as hey we want this kind of request you know we need such and such a feature and someone else says i know how to do that and they submit a pull request and it gets actioned upon so open source allows you to allows the project in general to be more healthy and vibrant because people can contribute to it and add the features that they need, even if the original project either didn't have the manpower or, or de-emphasized that particular functionality. So you benefit because it is open source and other people are contributing to it, not just the, the main vendor. So that's a that's a great selling point. I have I have I, I I've typically tried to fill that void to a degree myself. And I would admit that we've done that with varying degrees of success. But a lot of times what I will see is somebody will come in and say, hey, we want this particular feature. or We want this particular thing and it doesn't exist. Oftentimes what I found is just by asking the person who is developing the project and saying, hey, can we, uh, can we have this or can, would it be possible to make this happen? They will just do it. The most recent example of that, there is a time tracking app that I absolutely love. It's called Simple Time Tracker. And it's a time tracker from, um, that's available on Android, uh, open source. And it, it's, it's real simple. It just, you open it up and you add your different categories that you want to track time for, and then you just tap on them and it tracks time. 
And it's a super powerful app, but there were a couple little things missing. And all we did was open a, a GitLab request and said, hey, would it be possible to do this? And the guy said, yeah, absolutely, no problem. And went back and, 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 and did it immediately. There was another example with a church. They used a, uh, a software called BitFocus, which uh, essentially integrates into cameras. And well, actually, it'll integrate into a lot of things. And it'll allow you to control uh, various different things from a, a little steamed, a stream deck, the a little Elgato button uh, box thing. And so they had the guy who 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 does the BitFocus project had uh, a number of different cameras that you could control. So you could do the zoom and and uh, and pan and start stop recording and all those things. Well, the church bought a newer camera, and it didn't have support with BitFocus. And so the technical director at the church reached out to the guy who develops the source and said, "Hey, we bought this new camera and it doesn't work. Would you be able or willing to help?" And the guy says, "Well, I don't have that camera." But what I would need to make it work is I need the output from this particular web interface. Camera had a web interface. So I need the output from this web interface. So can you open up the developer console, click on all these buttons, copy and paste everything that comes out in the developer console onto the network tab and send that to me, and I will write the plugin for your camera. And they did that, and it worked. Uh, and, and so they were able to get that problem solved. And so kind of dovetailing on to what you said, a lot of times you have the opportunity to directly interface with the people running the project. So even if you yourself don't have any interest in running or writing or maintaining code, you can work with the developer to 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 create a, a, a solution for your business. Now, that has to be done within reason, obviously, but project developers are usually there because they have a passion for, for developing their thing. And so if they get feedback, says, hey, this is how you can make it more useful, they're oftentimes very willing to do that. I try to... Uh, to marry that to the idea that to a degree you have to have a forward-looking lens on how you're going to have support for your project if you don't plan for that if you don't plan to maintain it if you don't plan to support it you may find yourself up 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 a tree without a paddle so to speak how about this and this kind of directly uh follows on to that who supports the thing if you're not around well, I mean, that's a question that's easily answered for Red Hat because it's unlikely that Red Hat's going to disappear tomorrow. Even even if the worst happens, there would be a wind down period. And then on top of that, there are so many people that, that use and depend on our projects, even if you're talking about Rocky or Alma or, or you know, insert project here, someone would pick that up immediately. So for, for a company like Red Hat, that that question doesn't even come into uh, question. Yeah, I, uh, I, I have struggled a little bit to answer that because obviously I don't have a large company uh, behind me. So to a certain degree, if I do get hit by a bus, we have an exit plan and there are plenty of people that are there. Uh, the exit plan does not include indefinitely maintaining every piece of open source software we've ever put in for a client. So there's that. Um, what I try to direct people to is the fact that because it's an open source project, there are a number of different organizations that will support a, a given workflow to include if you're running 
Red Hat on your server, if you're running a Red Hat compatible distribution on a server and AltaSpeed or whoever it is that's maintaining your infrastructure goes under, you have the opportunity to call Red Hat up and say, hey, I want you to maintain this or I want help from you. I want to buy a support contract and there's an opportunity to do that. So I think um, I, 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 the, the other part of that is if, if there is a number of, of people that are contributing to a given project, and if there's a large enough community around that project, oftentimes you can even self-support. Um, and so I've seen that work to a degree as well, where the, the, the client will go out. In fact, this happened with OpenEMR. Uh, client wanted something done and uh, wasn't able to do it themselves, didn't have an in-house developer, and just went to the OpenEMR people and said, hey, we're, uh, we're, we're a place and we use this thing, and can you help us with this, or will you help us solve this problem, or will you help us troubleshoot? And it wasn't the same as having a dedicated support person to look at your issue and directly do it, but they were able to answer enough questions that they were able to, to, get, um, to get their problem solved. So I, th I think to a certain degree, just because there isn't a company that is there and putting their stamp on things does not necessarily mean you are out of support if, if you run into a problem and the company that was supporting you wasn't. It's a valid concern though, right? Because especially, especially in the smaller communities, if you're talking about the larger uh, larger communities, you might be able to find more open source friendly people. But if you're in small towns like you or I, uh, that becomes more difficult. Yes, it does. Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time. If you'd like to catch more of the show, you can find the entire back catalog at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Make sure to check us out on Twitter. You can follow the show at Ask Noah Show. He's Linux Ovens. I'm at Colonel Linux. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can learn more at asknoahshow.com. We'll be back next Tuesday. See you then.